Hey guys, how's it going? Give me a second here. I kind of got behind the schedule. Settings, hang on a second. I'm on the wrong mic here. Oh, I'm not on the wrong mic. Okay. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday night. Another week starts with California Haunts Radio. We move this forward. I hope you guys are ending your weekend on a good note. I know I've had a really good weekend so far. It's not over yet, right? We're starting a little earlier on this tonight because, hang on. Because I want to go out in my yard while there's still some daylight and do some yard things. But anyway, I hope you guys are having a great weekend. I know people are on vacation. It's that time of year, right? Who has time to read books? But you know what? I know there's some of you at home right now that... It's too hot. I know where I'm at. It's too hot to go anywhere. It's really too hot to go anywhere, literally. So uh, I stay inside with my one room of air conditioning and read a book, right? Let me make sure I have my cold water nearby. We'll give everybody about five minutes to get in here because I'm a half hour earlier than usual. I got my water. Should I get some ice water here? Much better, kind of like casual Friday, only it's casual Sunday slash Monday. So, uh, my name is Charlotte, I'm gonna be your host for the next hour, and uh, I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state of California. And that means that if you have a paranormal need, you can find us somewhere. I mean, you know, we're, we're within range, almost every county. And if we're not in your county, we can get to your county. So it's not an issue, okay? Uh, also, next Saturday at 7 p.m. Pacific, I'm gonna be teaching a psychic development class. And it's a beginner psychic development class, basic, where you learn how to open and close that, get one of in my pockets. Open and close that psychic door. And I teach you how to do all that stuff. And I teach you, and then we practice a little bit of ESP, a little bit of everything to see where your talents might lie. Let's do this a little bit. There we go, adjustment. You know, to see where your talents might lie as far as your psychic abilities. Just wait out. Are you psychic? You think you're psychic? Maybe you're, you're already psychic, but you want to know how to control it. Remember, once you open that psychic door, not only good comes in, but bad stuff can come in too. So what this class teaches you is how to control all that so that you don't have that problem. All right? So, and I also teach you protection stuff. So, uh, yeah, you know. But anywho, uh, that's going to be next Saturday at 7 p.m. Pacific. I'm going to be teaching that right here on StreamYard, actually. So whoever signs up, I'll send you links and all that stuff. And, uh, yeah. So we'll go to the California Haunts. Just type in California Haunts Meetup. Our California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup. And you can get in there. It's over on the Meetup site where you can sign up. Anyway, tomorrow we're going to have a great show as well. We start out our regular great guest week tomorrow. Ivor Davis is going to be with us. And Ivor has spent a lot of time with a lot of movie stars and a lot of singers and stuff like that. And he has interviewed, he's interviewed the Beatles. He's interviewed Elizabeth Taylor and, and all kinds of people. And tomorrow, because... Elvis week is coming up, obviously, in August, and the fact that the Elvis movie's out, we're going to 
we'll be talking to Ivor about else. So this should be an interesting night. That'll be tomorrow at the usual time. So we're going to continue. I see my internet's in bad humor today. Must be a lot of people online. Uh, we're going to continue with Lizzie Borden today, and you know she's already. We left her. We left off. Don't you hate when you have things hanging? Ow! Then you, then you hit your elbow on something. Uh, when we left Lizzie last week, she had done the deed, right? We were at that point where, where she had allegedly, we're going to say allegedly because the police haven't proved anything yet. So allegedly she had done the deed to her, to her mother, to her stepmother and father. And the police had done an investigation. You know, they spent the whole day in the house investigating. And they're still kind of coming around, checking things out because they're realizing that Lizzie kind of tripped herself up on a couple stories that she's told to the police. You know, she, 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 she's kind of changed things. So the funeral's coming up for her, for, for, for her parents, and the police are still really interested in what she has to say, and they're still interviewing people, whether the people are in her immediate family or whether they're, like, from stores or, or whoever might have come in contact with her. Okay, or might have been in contact with the father. So they're checking everybody out right now to see what they can do. But it seems like as, as, as we read the book, they're getting more and more interested in Lizzie. And what she did in her story and, and why it, there's a few, there's some holes in her story. So they're, they're taking a closer look at Lizzie. And, and as of last weekend when we were reading the book, Lizzie was getting kind of irritated with it. You know, because she started to realize that it wasn't going to be as cut and dry as she thought the investigation was going to be. It's more complicated than she thought. So now she's starting to get kind of edgy and nervous, you know, as far as the investigation goes. So I think we're going to see more of that today as, as I'm reading. Okay, one more minute and we'll get in there. I just want to give everybody time to grab their dinner or whatever and uh, we can get rolling on this. So let me drink some more water. It is hot outside. I was out shopping for a while today and uh, came back. I also was working out in my yard this earlier, like around 11 a.m. today. It was still hot. My gosh, it was hot. Put up my umbrella. Did some stuff out in my yard. But anyway, I will be your host for the next hour. And we're going to be reading. Let me open up my tablet. I always laugh about this, but if any of you like want to buy me a new tablet, that'd be great. I've got a Venmo account, right? So let me put this down here. It's been charging up just for you guys. See, I've got my old, see all my tablets. No, it's not an iPad. It's a Galaxy Note 8. It's so old, I can't even update it anymore. Or accept updates. So... I gotta take what I get with it. So we can start reading. And like I said, Lizzie, the, the investigation continues. Funeral's coming up for Lizzie, but the investigation into the deaths of the uh, of her two parents, well, the father and stepmother, uh, are continuing. And it's kind of looking to the police like 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 Lizzie might have had something to do with it. So yeah, and she's starting to get kind of cold feet, get nervous about it. If you're watching from Facebook. And you enjoy this Sunday reading, please uh, hit that follow button. Especially if you're watching from California Haunts Ghostly Events, please hit that follow button. I'm looking for followers. If you're watching from Twitch, please hit that follow button. 
And if you're watching from YouTube, uh, there's a little ghost down in the, broad, in the right-hand corner, bottom right-hand corner, that has a uh, magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. Please hit that to subscribe. We have a lot of videos over there. I'll, I'll, I think more than two, 270 now of different topics. You know, it's not only about ghost hunting and stuff like that. There's other topics on there as well that I think that I think there's a little something for everybody. I really do. Okay. All right. Looks like I got bit here. See, because I was outside. Looks like I got bit this side too. Okay. So let me get on with this here. Doo -doo. Okay. We're opening up the book. Give it a second. It's old like me. Opening up the Kindle. Write my own little song. And it just went dark, which is normal for this thing. Like I said, it's old. It's out of memory. And I have to go back in. Give me a second. I'm lucky it functions at this point. There we go. So I forget what chapter we're in. But the uh, topic over the heading on this little section is an ill-advised trip to the post office. And away we go. At 8 o'clock Friday morning, or Friday evening, John Morris once again left the house, desperate to get to the post office for any news from William Davis. He needed to be reassured that the entire horse and cattle transactions were under wraps. If word got out that he and Andrew were in the middle of a major deal that involved the signing over deeds to the Swansea farms, all hell would break loose. It could be imagined Andrew backed out at the last minute, and John murdered him because of it. John Morse, six feet tall with gray hair, gray and beard, and wearing the same rumpled gray suit he always sported, was an easy target as he elbowed his way through the crowds. Bridget Sullivan was walking along with him down 2nd Street. People began to follow them, saying, that's John Morse. By the time Mr. Morse had dropped a letter into the box at the post office, the crowd had swelled to 1,000 people. Murder, someone cried. The crowd turned from curious to a lynch mob within seconds. Hang him, they screamed. Officer Devine, who had been tailing Morse, raised his club and ordered the crowd to stand back. He and another officer, who had been detailed to follow Bridget, escorted the rattled Mr. Morse and frightened servant back to the boarding house, where John remained the rest of the night. Next, next section. Andrew and Abby are prepared for burial. That evening, James Winward arrived at the boarding house. It was time to prepare the bodies for burial the next day. Undertaker Winward had rarely faced something as daunting as making Andrew and Abby presentable for the family viewing the next morning. Emma undoubtedly provided the funeral director with Andrew's best suit, and Abby's relatives may have chosen her nicest dress, along with hair brushes and clips. The bodies were touched up with mortician's makeup to hide bruising and discoloration. The three bruises on Abby's forehead and bridge of her nose, formed when she fell face first into the carpet, were carefully concealed beneath the pancake makeup. The caskets remained ready to receive Mr. and Mrs. Morton. The bodies were lifted into the coffins. The undertaker carefully turned Andrew's head to the left on a satin pillow, obscuring the mutilated side of his head. Only the right side of his face was now visible. Abby's head was turned slightly to the right. Although her hair was carefully arranged to hide the multitude of blows to the right side of her head, there was still evidence of several of the attacks that had landed over her right ear. 
the cooling boards were taken away, and Andrew and Abby Borden were left in the darkness of the sitting room where their caskets had been carried to await the morning. Darkness settled over the Borden home. Bridget and John were sequestered together in the monkey attic, their whisperings merging with the soft patter of rain on the roof overhead. Little by little, they pieced together what must have happened the day before. A trust formed between the two, one whose ties were not strong enough to keep them from contradicting the other statements or the, on the witness stand. With the public suspicions printed every, each day in bold black ink across the fold of her rags, it was every man for himself. It was not lost on the maid or the relative huddled in the shadows that evening that a push came to shove the church-going born-bred youngest daughter of one of the town's wealthiest citizens would hold favor over an Irish immigrant and a dish-leveled horse-trading uncle from the West. Another axe, born of fear and suspicion, could fall from the public pulpit at any time. Chapter 24 Saturday, August 6, 1892 Saturday morning's papers were full of theories and musings. Any clue worth mentioning, and some that weren't, were heralded in bold print. The New York Times ran several columns covering everything from the mysterious stranger who stood on the board's front doorstep the preceding Monday, dressed in baseball shoes, to the funeral service happening that day. Fall River, Massachusetts, August 6th. The bodies of the murdered couple were buried today. As early as 9 o'clock, the house was surrounded by a great crowd of curiosity seekers. Reporters, artists, photographers, and policemen were active among them. Mr. Morris came from the house and talked freely with a group of reporters. He said it was a terrible thing to be suspected and shadowed, as he has been. But he courts the fullest investigation and is anxious and willing to do all he can to trace the perpetrators of the, as a great crime. He said Miss Lizzie Borden's health was in about the same condition as it was last Thursday afternoon. She did not mingle with the family to any great extent. When Mr. Fish of Hartford, a nephew of her stepmother, appeared, she gave him a very cool reception. About 11 o'clock, preparations were, were commenced for the funerals. People numbering between 3,000 and 4,000 assembled in front of the house, and about 20 policemen maintained a clear passageway. Parenthesis. On the morning of the funerals, with the caskets laid out in the sitting room, John Morris's focus is on alerting the media of his innocence doubtless due to the frightening mob scene the evening before. Rather than tout Andrew and Abby's virtues on this somber day, he chooses to hold a press conference outside the house declaring his innocence. In parentheses. The newspaper report continued. The Reverend, the, yeah, the Reverend Dr. Adams of the First Congregational Church and City Missionary, Buck, soon arrived. The bodies were laid in two plain black clock-covered caskets in the sitting room where Mr. Borden was killed. An ivy wreath was placed on Mr. Borden's bier, and a bouquet of white roses and fern leaves tied with a white satin ribbon was placed beside Mrs. Borden. There were about 75 persons present in the services in the house, which consisted of reading from the scriptures in prayer. There was no singing and no remarks. The mourners were Mrs. Olivia, Mrs. Oliver Gray, stepmother of the dead woman, G.H. Fish, and wife of Hartford, the latter sister of Mrs. Borden, Dr. Borden and wife, Dr. Bowen and wife, I'm sorry, Southern Miller, and a few of the neighbors. Parentheses, 
This included Emily Churchill and Mrs. Thomas Cheatham. Oddly, Alice Russell is not mentioned as being in attendance, although we know she and Mrs. Holmes remained behind after the funeral departed to keep an eye on the house. Hiram Harrington and his wife, Marana, and her sister were also there, along with Mrs. Riscombe Case, Mrs. J.D. Burt, William Wilcox, and John Durfee. End of parentheses. The burial was private, that is, only a few of the immediate family and friends were asked to accompany the remains to the cemetery. The pallbearers for Mr. Borden were Abraham C. Hart, cashier of the Union Savings Bank, George W. Dean, a retired capitalist, Jerome C. Borden, a relative of the deceased, Richard B. Borden, treasurer, and Troy Mills, in which Mr. Borden was a director. What? Oh, I'm sorry. B. Borden, treasurer of the Troy Mills, in which Mr. Borden was a director. My bad. James M. Osborne, an associate of the deceased in several mills, and Andrew J. Borden, treasurer of the merchant's mill, in which Mr. Borden was a large owner. Parentheses. It is interesting to note that of Andrew's pallbearers, only one was a relative. An insight into his lifestyle is evident. Business dealings replaced social acquaintances, and even familiarity with the Borden relatives that blanketed Fall River. That John Morris was not one of the men who respectfully bore Andrew's casket to the hearse is worthy of note. End parentheses. The pallbearers for Mrs. for Mrs. Borden were James C. Eddy, Henry C. Buffington, Frank L. Almey, J. Henry Wells, Simeon B. Chase, and John H. Boone. As the procession wended its way along North Main Street, many old associates of Mr. Borden were seen to raise their hats. Miss Lizzie Borden and Miss Emma Borden were, of course, the principal mourners. Miss Lizzie went out of the house first, leaning on the undertaker's arm. Her nerves were completely unstrung, as was shown by the trembling of her body and the manner in which she bore down on her supporter. When she reached her carriage, she fell back exhausted on the cushions. Early Saturday morning, before the mourners arrived, Emma Borden and Mrs. Mariana Holmes scrubbed down as many of the blood spots on the parlor door and wallpaper as they could. Dr. Dolan testified that he gave precise orders that nothing was to be cleaned up in either of the murder rooms. John testified Emma did the cleaning of the parlor Saturday morning. She probably could not bear her father's funeral service being held in a room spattered with his blood for all to see. Some of the spots did remain. But by the time Dr. Dolan arrived that afternoon to take a closer look at the room, they were greatly diminished. Lizzie entered the sitting room early and had a private moment with her father as he lay in his open casket. Mrs. Holmes led her to the coffin and stood by as Lizzie wept, placing her hands on the casket. She leaned in and kissed her father. It was said that the casket of Andrew was closed during the services, while Abby's remained open. This is not substantiated. Whether Emma had a similar moment with her father is also not documented. If Andrew's small gold ring was indeed missing, it was a simple thing to hide by the placement of his hands or that the coffin lid may have hidden his body from the chest down. It is possible Emma chose not to see him and only took Lizzie's word that he was buried with his ring. The Boston Globe wrote that Andrew's casket bore three heavy silver handles on each side and on the lid the inscription, Andrew Borden, died August 4th, 1892. 
aged 70 years. The inscription on the other casket was confined to the deceased's name and age. It is possible that Emma and Lizzie made the arrangements for their father's casket and floral arrangement while Abby's may have been left to her stepmother and stepsister, Bertie. The flowers adorning Abby's of white roses, sweet pea, and fern were, sign were significant. Sweet pea represented simple pleasures and is often found in bridal bouquets. White roses were purity and innocence. These sentiments seem more likely to have come from Abby's family than from Lizzie or Emma. Andrew's simple wreath of ferns stood for fidelity and sincerity. Much was made of Lizzie's funeral dress that day. It was black with beaded trim and very form-fitting. One newspaper commented it fitted her round and shapely body faultlessly. Funeral dresses of that era were typically black wool with plain crepe adornment. Lizzie had chosen to wear something more stylish. Her small black hat was adorned with tiny flowers. Neither she nor Emma wore veils. Another thumbing of the nose to, to another thumbing of the nose to, to, to propriety, and it was and it was commented on by those who saw the sisters exit the house that morning. John Morris was the last to leave. He walked quickly to his carriage and seated himself next to Reverend Buck and Reverend Doctor Adams. Mr. Morris looked straight ahead, his head steady as the crowd of people stared. At eleven o'clock, eleven hacks and two hearses began the funeral procession away from the boarding house. The going was slow, as throngs of people numbering in the thousands jogging for a view of the mourners. The procession traveled north on 2nd Street to Borden Street, on to South Main Street, and past the Andrew J. Borden building. Whether Lizzie, Emma, or John Morris felt a lump rising in their throat as they passed the stone facade that bore Andrew's name is unknown. It then continued north to Cherry Street, to Rock Street, and east on Prospect Street, and to the main gate at Oak Grove Cemetery. The procession arrived at the cemetery at 1220, where several hundred people stood about the grounds awaiting the burial. A dozen policemen, under the direction of Sergeant John Brock Brocklehurst, held the crowd back. A few artists began busily sketching the scene. Representatives from every major New England paper were there, awaiting the, the entourage. If they were hoping to capture cameo moments of the sisters at the gravesides, they were disappointed. Lizzie, Emma, and the other mourners remained in their carriages. Only John Morse emerged, along with the clergy, pallbearers, and funeral director's assistants. The two graves were near the northeast corner of the lot. The tops of the graves were lined with cloth, and the tops of the open cavities covered in fir branches. A brief service, lasting only a few minutes, took place. Reverend E. A. Buck read from the New Testament, inciting, I am the resurrection and the life. Reverend Dr. Adams took the occasion to ask the spiritual guidance of all and the inclination of all to submit to divine control that the ends of justice might be delivered without mistake and all might be delivered from the domination of evil. Lizzie's ears may have heard more in those words than others. She remained in the carriage, as did the rest of the family, for five minutes following the service. There was no sound. Suddenly, an elderly woman in a simple dress made her way quickly to the graves and was about to kneel when an officer moved her away. She went to the fence surrounding the grounds and cried. Some whispered she had worked for the Borden's years earlier. The carriages bearing the mourners pulled away, leaving the caskets still standing near their fur-covered graves. Unbeknownst to the family, Undertaker Winward had received word from Dr. Dolan that morning, 
and nine, that the bodies were not to be buried, but rather placed in the cemetery receiving vault for further examination. The sisters would not learn of this until weeks later. Saturday searches. By the time the last hack and the funeral procession turned the street, turned the corner of Second Street, heading for the cemetery, the police were at the back door of the Borden house. If Mrs. Holmes and Alice Russell were unhappy to see them, it would not be a surprise. It was their duty to make sure nothing was taken away. Left in charge of the house, they felt a huge responsibility to protect Lizzie's and Emma's privacy. That was not to happen. At around half past twelve, Detective Seaver, Marshal Hilliard, and Captain Desmond entered the house and made a beeline for the second floor. This would be their first time having access to the sisters' bedrooms without the ladies being there. Oddly enough, they restricted their searches to the beds. They took off the bedding, shook out the mattresses, and peeked at the back of Lizzie's lounge where it sat against the wall, beneath the windows. According to Detective Seaver, they did not look into the bureau drawers. Marshal Hilliard watched as Detective Seaver took apart the bed in the guest room where Abby was killed. Alice Russell, who remained at the house that morning, had a different version of what the police searched in Lizzie's room. Her superior court testimony included the following. Alice Russell. I think one of the officers took the keys that lay on the bureau after Miss Lizzie had left and unlocked one or two drawers in her bureau and didn't search any farther there. I think they opened what she called her toilet room, pulled the portiere, pulled the portiere on one side, just looked there a little. I don't know how much they searched. I think, I don't think very much. And they went into Miss Emma's room and looked around and opened the cupboard door in the room. And I remember one of the officers pressing against a bundle after he shut it. I think so. Some pillow or blanket. Something of that kind. And the bed was taken to pieces. That's all I saw. Parentheses. If this bundle was the small pillow in which Lizzie may have hidden the sleeves and hem from the Bedford Court dress, it would be interesting to know if the man searched it. Had she removed the damning evidence earlier, realizing the men were going to continue returning to her room? In the parentheses. Marshal Hilliard was questioned about the search during the preliminary hearing. He too denies any knowledge of the bureau drawers being searched. He does say something interesting concerning the search. Hilliard. The search was made, and I went there after the funeral procession left the house and made a partial search of three rooms. Miss Lizzie's room, the room to the north room, which was Emma's room, and the front room, which is the guest room, upstairs. It may have been Officer Medley's report from his trip to New Bedford the day before that was handed to Marshal Hilliard. That report listed Lizzie as going into town alone to buy some cheap dress goods. The fact that the men limited themselves at the time of the morning search to just the bedding and, and, look, and looked at the back of the lounge in Lizzie's room shows they were not looking for something bulky. Was it the dress goods they were searching for in an effort to validate her movements in New Bedford? Did they hope to find something hidden inside it? The police went away before the funeral party returned. Alice and Mariana Holmes may have hurriedly tried to make the three beds so as not to upset the sisters, especially Lizzie, who was showing strain. There is no mention of the hours between 12.50, when it is likely the family returned home at 3 p.m. that afternoon. If the customary tradition of bringing food to the house was carried out, there was no mention of it. 
this was an unusual funeral, to say the least. The couple had been brutally murdered in the house, something much different than the usual death. The walls were still speckled with blood, and the dining room had been used as a mortician's laboratory. Perhaps the serving of food to guests would have been in poor taste. The Mysterious Club Alice Russell testified during the coroner's inquest that something on Saturday morning frightened her. She told Attorney Knowlton the following, Alice, The morning of the funeral, I went out to do some errands, sometime between 9 and 10. And when I came back, my hair was tumbled, and I took my dress waist off and combed my hair. When I had gotten through, I put my waist on again and had nearly finished it. And I turned and I saw something in under the bed that frightened me almost to pieces. It was a big stick. That, I think, it was something that their father kept in the house. It was at the head of the bed, plainly visible. I saw the end of it. It was not out from under the bed at all. I could see it a little way under the bed. I told it to detect, I told Detective Hancock, and he asked Emma. I don't think the girl knew anything about that I found it. I was terribly alarmed, because I felt as if in some way it implicated me. I had not seen it there before, and I should think I would have. Alice called Officer Hyde and pointed it out to him. It was subsequently handed over to Marshall Hilliard. Parentheses. Officer Doherty, Molly Lee, and Mr. Fleet looked under Abby and Andrew's bed the day of the murders and saw nothing. Other officers looked over the room as well. When was the club placed there? Who would have done so? One thought is this. The club is first seen on the day of the funeral. Lizzie's bed had not been searched up to that day. Had the stick been secreted beneath her mattress for some reason? Knowing as soon as she left for the funeral, the police would probably search her room as she tossed it beneath her father's bed. Was it her intention to scare Alice into leaving so that she could have some privacy and dispose of the bedford cord she had been wearing for three days beneath her outer clothing? Or was it just to get rid of it, rather than be found in a club large enough to bash someone's head in, hidden in her bed? Alice said she was gone from 9 to 10 that morning. Lizzie did not leave with the funeral procession until after 11. At 3, the police were back. It appears quite callous on the surface after all. The sisters had just buried their parents, or so they thought. Through the side door came Marshal Hilliard, Assistant Marshal Fleet, Andrew Jennings, Dr. Dolan, Captain Desmond, and State Detective Seaver. They headed directly for the attic. Marshal Hilliard stated that, We commenced in the top of the house, what I should call the attic rooms. We searched the whole landing clear through. Every box, drawer, trunk, barrel, bed, and bundle was searched. Mr. Fleet even went up to the roof, along with the rich pole, and searched around under the eaves. They searched every room, clear down the cellar. They once again searched Lizzie's room, along with, along with the others. Hilliard testified that as he was searching Lizzie's room again, Detective Seaver, Mr. Fleet, and Chaplain Desmond, and Captain Desmond, were giving the clothes press, which parentheses closet at the end of the hall, a thorough going over. He himself did not go into the dress closet at the time. Parentheses. That search team had straight to the attic on Saturday afternoon. Maybe a continuation of the search for a certain item they began looking for during the funeral that morning. First on their list was to search the trunks and boxes in the attic. Were they still looking for the dress? 
They're still looking for the dress goods Lizzie claims she purchased on that one secret outing in New Bedford. Unquote. Marshall Hilliard elaborated on her search in the cellar. Hilliard. We looked around the cellar. It was not what I call a thorough search. There were barrels piled up in one of the cellars off of what I call the laundry or washroom. Then west of that room of the laundry was another cellar where there was a great quantity of wood. Then west of that again, there was another cellar or room and also a space where the furnace set, the boiler or whatever it was, and also the foundation or top of the foundation. We looked Saturday afternoon there to see if there was any place where a brick or stone could be removed or had been removed, but there was nothing of the kind. We had a mason come in on Monday to see whether anything could have been thrown down the chimney, a weapon or anything. Parentheses. Have the police found Lizzie's loose brick in her fireplace and wondered if a weapon could have dropped down inside the flue? Obviously, nobody was going to climb up on the roof and pitch it down from the chimney openings. It could be tossed up the flue opening, but it would have to turn a right angle to go down. Marshal Hilliard notified Andrew Jennings on Saturday that they would be coming back on Monday to dismantle the chimney in the cellar. This report to Jennings is significant and facilitated a drastic move on Lizzie's part the day before they were to return, in parentheses. Andrew Jennings, for the defense. Take the search of Saturday as to whether you received any assistance or information that you requested from the girls in the house there. Miss Lizzie and Miss Emma, I mean. Hilliard, yes, sir. Miss Emma came into the kitchen while we were there, in fact. All that were there on the search, even to yourself stood on the kitchen floor. When Miss Emma, I can't say her exact words, but as near as I can, she told us that she wanted us to make as, as thorough an examination as possible of every part of the house, everything in the house. And if there was any place or box or anything else that we did not understand, could, could not open, why the keys would be given to us. I think she handed you or, so, or someone in the party the keys to the upper floor, Jennings, to the upper floor, Jennings. That was before we started? Hilliard, yes, sir. Jennings, afterwards, when it was found, there were one or two things which apparently could not be opened. They furnished whatever information or means necessary. Hilliard, there was one trunk in the room at the west end and south side of the house that bothered all of us a little about the top part of it. I noticed it was not a great while after we had been at work on it before, I think, Miss Emma and Miss Lizzie both came in. Jennings, do you remember the steamer trunk we did not get into? Miss Emma showed us where the key was hanging. Hilliard, yes, sir, that is the one I'm speaking of. Jennings, was not that was not that Lizzie that showed us where the key was tied? Hilliard, that I could not say. It was one or the other, which I won't say. Jennings, they both came there to explain the thing to us so we could get into it? So far as you know, in any and all these searches, did there appear to be any attempt on their part to obstruct you or hinder you in any way in making a full examination of the house? Hilliard, not that I am aware of, sir. Jennings, on the day of the search, Saturday, what was delivered to you? Hilliard, address. Jennings, what kind of address? Hilliard, a dress skirt with a blue figure in it. It was a blue, it, it was blue ground with, white, with a white figure. Similar to a navy blue collar. The dress waist, perhaps part of it, in the front was loose. There was also a white underskirt, where the pin had spot size of blood. 
Jennings. Was there any was there anything else given to you that day, Marshall? Hilliard. Yes, sir. There was, I think, a lounge cover that was taken from the dining room. Parentheses. The lounge cover may have had blood on it from Abby's autopsy, and the sisters wanted it removed. Or it may have been to wrap Lizzie's dress and petticoat in to keep them from prying keep them from the prying eyes of the public. In parentheses. This is the cross-examination by Attorney Knowlton during the preliminary hearing. Knowlton. Mr. Hilliard, did you look at the trunks in the attic? Hilliard. Yes, sir. Knowlton. All of them? Hilliard. Yes, sir. Knowlton. Did you examine their contents? Hilliard. Yes, sir. Knowlton. Did you see anything up there of an unmade dress pattern in the attic? Hilliard. Well, well, some of the trunks that I looked into, but I did not look into all of them. I did not, to my recollection, see any dress pattern in any of the trunks I saw. Knowlton. What other officer looked into the trunks in the attic besides you? Hilliard. I think Mr. Seaver. I'm not sure. But what Mr. Fleet did? I think Mr. Desmond. Okay, Knowlton. Have you been to inquire for a dress pattern since? Hilliard. I have not. But under my orders, other officers have. Knowlton. Who did go? Hilliard. Mr. Fleet. Knowlton. Have you been able to get the dress pattern or any dress pattern? Hilliard. No, sir. Knowlton. When was it you sent for it? Hilliard. I think the first officer that went there was Mr. Medley. After that, I think, I am pretty positive, I sent Assistant Marshal Fleet. Week before last, I think, was the first time the officers went there. I think Mr. Fleet was there a week ago, last Saturday night. I think he was there someday, the first part of the week. Of last week. Knowlton. And you have not got it. Hilliard. No, sir. Knowlton. I now call for it. Brother Jennings and ask for you to bring it, not, not now, but this afternoon. Detective Seaver was questioned shortly after Marshal Hilliard. Only the short testimony of Dr. Lerner separated the two police officers. The dress pattern was once again addressed. Knowlton, did you see anything of a dress pattern not made up there? Seaver, no, sir. Knowlton, did you see the trunks Mr. Fleet looked into? Did you look into the contents of them? Seaver, I did not. Knowlton, you did not find any dress pattern at all up there in the garret. Seaver, not up there. Knowlton, how many trunks were up there? Seaver, I couldn't tell you, three or four. Parentheses. The interesting thing here is that the policemen are looking for a dress pattern. Officer Medley's report from his trip to New Bedford to follow up on Lizzie's time spent there, nine days before the murders, clearly states that Lizzie went into town alone to buy a piece of dress goods of cheap material. That indicates it was a fabric Lizzie bought, not a dress pattern. The definition of dress goods is lightweight fabric, usually cotton or calico. Did the officers, being men, assume Medley's report that Lizzie bought some dress goods assumed it was a dress pattern? It is also significant that the first man who went in to search for the pattern was Officer Medley. Knowlton repeatedly asked if the officers found any dress patterns not already made up cut up and form and formally used to make a dress. When he asked Lizzie about the dress pattern during her inquest testimony, she showed surprise that he asked about a dress pattern and not fabric, and she quickly takes advantage of it, in parentheses. A portion of Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony, Attorney Knowlton, 
Is there anyone? Is there anything you would like to correct in your previous testimony, Lizzie? No, sir. Knowlton, did you buy a dress pattern in Bedford, Lizzie? A dress pattern? Parentheses. She is surprised. The question. Knowlton, yes, Lizzie. I think I did. Knowlton, where is it? Home. Knowlton, where at home? Parentheses. The searchers found no pattern. Lizzie, we're at home? Parentheses, buying time to think. Knowlton, please. Lizzie, it is in a truck. Knowlton, in your room? Lizzie, no, sir, in the attic. Knowlton, not made up? Lizzie, oh, no, sir. Knowlton, where did you buy it? Lizzie, I don't know the name of the store. Knowlton, on the principal street there? Lizzie, I think it was on the street that Hutchinson's bookstore is on. I'm not positive. Knowlton, what kind of a one was it, please? Lizzie, it was a pink stripe and white stripe and a blue stripe quarter gingham. Lizzie, parentheses, Lizzie, who anchors all of her lives to physical objects, has just described the dresses made for her in the spring by Mrs. Raymond. Attorney Knowlton may not yet be aware of that fact, as this is the initial inquest, and Mrs. Raymond was not called until a year later for the Superior Court trial to appear on behalf of the defense. Lizzie's mind must have been racing, knowing if they do find the dress pattern she just described, they will find it had already been made, made up. Lizzie pulls out the name of the store in which she undoubtedly spends a good deal of time in Bedford, Hutchinson's books. Her love of books was well known. She may have simply grabbed some cheap fabric from a store she took no no from a store and took no notice on her way back to Mrs. Poole's. To show that she had been doing, to show what she had been doing during her time away, this fabric would be turned into a loose-fitting dress. Yet the dress pattern is not found during the Saturday search, preceding the inquest. Did Mrs. Raymond, the dressmaker, keep patterns after she made the dresses for her customers in case repairs were needed? It seems odd the men do, the men don't find a dress pattern of any kind in the home. Detective Seaver's response to Milton's question. We do not find any dress pattern at all up there in the, in the, in the, in the garret. It's strange. Seaver answers, not up there. Does that mean they did not find one elsewhere? When Knowlton asked Hilliard the date an officer was sent to ask for the pattern, he says, a week ago, last Saturday. That would be August 20th. Based on his date of testifying at the preliminary hearing, Lizzie is under arrest at that time and sitting in the Taunton jail which means the request was put to Emma. Hilliard sends Fleet again early the next week to ask for the pattern. The preliminary hearing was scheduled to begin August 22nd, in Monday, which coincides with the date Fleet returned to the house. He seems desperate to secure the dress pattern for the hearing. As it turns out, the preliminary hearing is postponed by Dalton, stating he is not in possession of all the evidence he needs. This incident will play out in the matron's rooms at the courthouse on the day before the hearing begins, and a showdown between Lizzie and Emma. After Detective Seaver leaves the stand during the preliminary hearing, two other witnesses are called, John Donnelly and Dr. Draper. Dr. Draper is questioned to some length. He is followed by Dr. Handy. An hour or two hours has now passed since Attorney Knowlton has asked for the dress pattern to be produced. Halfway through the interrogation of Dr. Handy, during the redirect, Attorney Knowlton interrupts the procedure. 
he has been head of the dress pattern. He says, I made some public allusion to the dress pattern. I'm satisfied that this is the dress pattern. So that whatever may have been supposed to have been the case is out of it. I say that injustice to the I say that injustice to the defense defendant. I thought to say I never supposed there was anything about it. I simply wanted to see it, that's all. As Alice would say, curiouser and curiouser. It appears the dress pattern has miraculously appeared after it could not be located at the house. A detailed search on several during detailed search on several in the case. Oh yeah, sorry. Search on several occasions. Did Jennings have it all along? Did Lizzie or Emma send someone out to buy the exact pattern to have on hand in case the prosecution wanted it? Or to pick up the one they used from Mrs. Raymond and replace the used patterns inside the new ones from a different pattern? Ones that were unmade. Surely no man would look farther than the cover of the envelope to see what the dress pictures meant to see that the dress pictures matched the one she described, and to peek inside to see the patterns had not yet been cut. The mystery remains. What pattern was handed to Attorney Knowlton during Dr. Henry's testimony? If he looked inside, he must have seen a new pattern not made up, and was satisfied. Or, if he did find a used pattern, he may have realized it did him no good. He would not have another shot at Lizzie to ask her about it. She testified only once at the inquest. It makes Knowlton's words somewhat cryptic. I am satisfied that this is the dress pattern. I never supposed there was anything about it. I simply wanted to see it. That is all. Once again, Lizzie has slipped away. If they had been looking for the cheap material she really bought, would they have found it? One more item of interest in relation to the dress pattern is that Lizzie's attorney, Andrew Jennings, never called Mrs. Raymond, the dressmaker, to the stand during the preliminary hearing. Did he fear, with the intense focus on the dress pattern, that Knowlton would question her and find out that pat the pattern that he described was the exact one the dressmaker had made up for her in the spring? Mr. Jennings did call Mrs. Raymond as a witness for the defense during the Superior Court trial almost a year later to do damage control relating to the burning of the dress. As Alice had told no one about the dress burning at this point, other than Detective Hanscom, who told Mr. Jennings, there is no need to bring Mrs. Raymond in yet. She will do more harm than good at this point. It would be interesting to see Mr. Knowlton's face during the Superior Court trial when he recognizes the description of the two dresses made up for Lizzie three months before his murders and realizes he's been duped. Next section, the clothes press. On Saturday afternoon, as Marshal Hilliard once again went through Lizzie's room, Detective Seaver and Fleet tackled the large dress closet at the end of the short hallway outside Lizzie's bedroom door. The ladies had gone down to the second floor to give the police full sway over the upper rooms. The clothes press, as it was called, contained the dresses of Lizzie and Emma Borden, along with some trunks and boxes. The dresses were hung on two rows of hooks, circling the room. The first row of hooks was screwed into the bottom of the shelf that rimmed the perimeter. The second row was screwed in the wall, thus allowing two layers of dresses packed up against each other. Detective Seaver was questioned during the preliminary hearing regarding the search of the clothes press. He described the closet as four feet by eight feet, with a large window facing the street. Attorney Knowlton, Attorney Knowlton, 
When you went in there, were there any clothes hung in front of the window? Seaver, I think not. Directly in front of the window. The window blind was closed very carefully by oilcloth, or something pinned something pinned to the sides and on top and as a guard, so the light came in very little when we came in there. We took the clothes down and opened one half of the shutter so we could see inside. Knowlton. Perfectly light. Per, 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 perfectly light. Was it in there? So you could see as well as there was any room? Seaver. Yes, sir. Knowlton. What did you see? What did you do in there? Seaver. We examined all the boxes, and I think there was one trunk there. Knowlton. Did you take everything out of those and look at them? Seaver. I cannot say that we took everything. Knowlton. Look them over. Seaver. It was satisfactory to us that we could not find anything we were looking for. Knowlton. Did you examine all the dresses in there? Seaver. We examined about all the dresses. I think there was one or two silk dresses I did not particularly look at. I looked at the common dresses, the woolen dresses there. There were two dresses I did not examine. They were silk dresses. I did not think it was necessary to examine those. Knowlton. Every other dress you examined? Examine carefully with a view to determine whether there was blood on them or not? Seaver. Yes, sir. That is what we were looking for. Knowlton. You found none? Seaver. No, sir. Parentheses. The two overlooked silk dresses could have, could have provided a hiding place for a dress to be placed inside of one. And both then suspended it from a peg. Saturday, there is nothing to hide there as Lizzie is once again wearing the two dresses from, yeah, Saturday, okay, sorry about that. Saturday, there is nothing to hide there, as Lizzie is once again wearing the two dresses from the day of the murders. In parentheses. By 6 p.m., the searchers called it quits. Dr. Dolan admitted to Emma Borden they had done everything but rip the wallpaper from the wall and tear up the carpet. Marshall Hilliard went one better. He declared the searching completed, they would be back Monday to do some masonry work in the basement, but he gave Emma the impression the searching of the rest of the house was done. Topic, the Mellon House. On Saturday morning, as the funeral of the Bordens was underway, a stranger rolled into Fall River. He checked into the Mellon House, the Spindle City's finest hotel and in the central location of town. His name was Superintendent O.M. Hanscom of the Boston office of the Pickerton Detective Agency. He was not there on behalf of the mayor or the marshal. Word quickly spread the prestigious detective had been hired by the Borden sisters. Mr. Hanscom arrived at the Borden home that Saturday afternoon and along with Mr. Jennings sat in consultation with Lizzie and Ed for about two hours. John Morse's whereabouts are unknown. Detective Hanscom remained in Fall River for two days, running down leads and questioning the sisters along with Alice Russell. And then, just as suddenly as he arrived, he disappeared, leaving behind the rumor that there had been a falling out between the Marshal and the famous Pinkertons. The Mellon House would be home to more than just Detective Hanscom that day. Marshal Hilliard was up against the wall. The newspapers were impaling him in his force for not making an arrest in the murders. Public opinion was that if Lizzie had been a poor girl and not a rich warden, she would already be in jail. He needed advice. After all the searching and gathering of clues, Marshal Hilliard and his officers decided the case was important enough to call in the district attorney, Hosea Knowlton, of New Bedford, Massachusetts. 
He arrived from his home in New Bedford Saturday and attended a short consultation at police headquarters. The gentleman then agreed to meet in a private room at the Mellon House later that afternoon to go over what they had so far in the case. According to Edwin Porter, the police reporter for the Fall River Globe, the following happened within the walls of the Mellon House private room probably B. The marshal took all the evidence which he had collected in the shape of notes, papers, etc., together with other documents bearing on the case, into the room with the five-man closeted there. District Attorney Knowlton, State Officer Seaver, Mayor Coughlin, and Dr. Dolan. At the close of the conference, the District Attorney advised the officers to proceed with the utmost caution and was extremely conservative in the conclusions he found. At that time, he had not been made acquainted with all the details. Quote, at the Mellon House consultation, the same caution was observed. The content were working on one of the most remarkable criminal records in history and were obliged to proceed slowly. Marshal Hilliard began at the beginning and continued to the end. He was assisted in the explanation by the mayor and the medical examiner. Mr. Seaver listened. There were details almost without end, and all of them were picked to pieces and viewed in every conceivable light. Considerable new evidence was introduced, and then the testimony of the officer not present was submitted, which showed Miss Lizzie Borden might have been mistaken in one important particular. The marshal informed the district attorney that the murder had occurred between 10 minutes of 11 and 13 minutes after 11 on Thursday morning. The time was as accurate as they could get, and they had spared no pains to fix it. The marshal, medical examiner, and mayor then carefully rehearsed step-by-step the summoning of Dr. Bowen, who was not at home when the murder was committed, and his ghastly discovery on the second floor. No theory other than Mrs. Borden was murdered first was entertained. Miss Lizzie Borden's demeanor during the many interviews which the police had with her was described at length, and the story of John V. Morris's whereabouts was retold. The missing note, the failure to find anyone who had sent it or been to the house, the lack of footprints in the barn loft, and the inconsistencies of Lizzie's stories were gone over in painstaking detail. After this extended conference of the highest authorities in the country, it was given out that the district attorney was much pleased with the work of the police and that an inquest would be held immediately before, the, before Judge Josiah C. Blaisdell of the 2nd District Court of Bristol, which is in Fall River Court. Next section. Are you suspected? You are suspected. As the long day drew to a close, a few people remaining within the walls of the boarding house sipped it through their individual thoughts. Lizzie was once again wearing the blue calico dress she had worn the afternoon of the murders, and throughout the day before on Friday. If it seems strange to those around her that she remained so attired, it is unknown. The Bedford cord, devoid of any sleeves and hemline, was still beneath the blue calico she was wearing. She had worn it out of the house, concealed under her black dress with the beaded trim that day. She had kept her arms crossed before her as she left the house for the funeral, leaning heavily on the arm of the undertaker. At the ceremony, she remained seated in the carriage. The black dress was snug, and she feared her secret would be exposed at any minute. The weight of the bed for cord and the concert reminder from the bloodstains that spotted the fabric had taken their toll. She needed desperately to be rid of it. To do that, she needed some privacy. 
By 7.30 Saturday evening, two of the three women in the house may have been feeling a sense of relief. The searches have been thorough and nerve-wracking, and the funeral an ordeal. But the marshals said the searches were over, all but the cellar chimneys. The family was still in shock at the number of people who had crammed the streets to the cemetery, who would have thought a United States president died. For Lizzie, the searches of her room meant only one thing. They suspected her. Why, why else would they tear apart the beds in the upper rooms? No murder would have been able no murderer would have been able to access her room, as it was always locked. She had told the police that. And the questions, so many, many questions. She felt as if a noose was tightening around her neck. As if in some ironic manifestations of her feelings of doom, a knock came at the door. It was fifteen minutes to eight. Still light outside, but too late for normal callers. Emma opened the door and found Marshall Hilliard standing there, along with Mayor John Coughlin. Excuse me. Emma's heart skipped a beat. It looked terribly official. She stood back demurely and asked the two men to enter. She caught sight of the crowd outside, the pre- outside pressing forward for a glimpse of her and inside the Borden's front entryway. A flash of anger passed through her. Why don't they all go home, she thought. Why, why are not... We are not a slideshow. Mayor Coughlin did all the talking as the marshal stood nearby, his eyes alert to the surroundings. He asked that they all assemble in the parlor for a few minutes. John Morse, looking nervous, entered and reluctantly sat in the balloon back chair in the corner. Lizzie walked in, her mask of detachment firmly in place. Alice Russell, perched like a bird about to take flight, sat on the edge of the sofa. Mayor Coughlin began by asking Lizzie a few questions. She repeated the story of her trip to the barn and finding her father murdered. She recalled Mrs. Borden's movements and that the last she saw of her was around nine that morning. The note to the sick friend was gone over, and Lizzie, and Lizzie deducing that it had probably been burned in the stove. John Morse was asked a few follow-up questions. For a man with an ironclad alibi, he came off as highly nervous and suspicious. His penetrating stare was a tad unnerving. Finally, Mayor Coughlin rose and with a slight sigh looked at, looked at each upturned face. I have a request to make of the family, he said, and that is that you remain in the house for a few days, as I believe it would be better for all concerned. Excuse me. Why, Lizzie blurted out, is there anybody in this house suspected? The mayor may have looked surprised at this sudden outburst. After a brief pause, he said, well, Perhaps Mr. Morse can answer that question better than I, as his experience last night perhaps would justify him in the inference that somebody in this house was suspected. Lizzie's eyes flashed. She would not be mollified by such an obvious evasion. I want to know the truth, she demanded, and Miss shot her a glance. Mayor Coughlin looked to Marshal Hilliard, who, who, remembering the district attorney's words to tread lightly, looked for an answer. I want to know the truth, Lizzie said again, more forcefully. Before Marshal Hilliard could stop him, the mayor made a huge mistake. Well, Miss Borden, Mayor Coughlin said, I regret to answer, but I must answer yes. You are suspected. Marshal Hilliard flinched. The room became deadly quiet, and all eyes were on Lizzie. We have tried to keep it from her as long as we could, Emma said, her voice tremulous. The color rising in Lily's cheeks 
was, was as indicative of a storm coming as a sudden gust of wind. Well, Lou said, standing and facing the mirror, I'm ready to go any time. The gauntlet was thrown down, not for the last time, but yet would follow. The marshal and mirror were completely taken back, taken back. This woman was incredible. They had never seen anything like her. Either she was entirely confident, confident of her innocence, or she was admitting guilt and wanted to get it over with. After an awkward silence, the men took their hats, excused themselves from, for interrupting the sisters' evening after such an ordeal as the one they had been through that day, and exited the room. Just as the mayor had reached the entryway, he turned back and said, If the crowds become too much, please inform the officers. I shall see that you receive all the protection that the police department can afford. Emma walked into the door and said, Of course, we want to do everything we can in this matter. The courteous exchange that had just occurred obscured the real meaning of the warning. Mayor Coughlin had just delivered. They were all essentially under house arrest. Calling Dr. Bowen. Parentheses. The following scenario was one created by the author for the purpose of giving a reason for an action Alice Russell later took that night. End of parentheses. The explosion Emma had expected from her younger sister was not long in coming. Lizzie was leaning against the back of a chair, her hands gripping the carved wood. Her face was infused with color, and her chest was heaving. It was the, it was the quiet before the storm. Suddenly, straightening, she turned on her sister, eyes blazing. Alice Russell, who had sat silently at the back of the room throughout the mayor's visit, her hands twisting a handkerchief into a tight long cord, looked at Lizzie in shock. This was a Lizzie she had not seen. You kept it from me, Lizzie screamed. You kept it from me? Don't you think I had a right to know? Don't you think I might have conducted myself differently if I had known? Emma stood her ground, but her frame seemed smaller. Her face twisted in pain. I'm sorry. We thought it was best. We? So you all have betrayed me. She screamed. You have betrayed me and thrown me to the wolves. Lizzie ran from the room and up the front stairs, her spur heels coming down hard on the carpeted rungs. Alice was standing now, visibly shaking. John's face was one of anger. Female histrionics was the last thing he needed. He walked easily into the entryway and grabbed his hat from the hall tree. Emma looked after him in surprise. They had just been told to remain inside the house. The slamming of the back screen door announced her uncle had chosen to ignore these orders. Gripping the railing, Lizzie careened around the curved staircase and ran into her room, slamming the door. She shoved the bolt on the inside of the door in place. Her breath coming in birth, ran around her bed and jerked the portiere aside, where she quickly hooked the door, separating her room from Alice's. She collapsed on the lounge, hanging great gulps of air, her fists clenched in fury. Emma knocked on Lizzie's door, begging her to talk to her. Alice waited nervously downstairs. Lizzie was hysterical. Emma heard great sobs coming through the door. After several attempts to calm her sister, she came downstairs and asked Alice to go across the street for Dr. Bowen. Alice was not considered one of the family under house arrest. After several moments of indecision, Miss Russell took a shawl and reluctantly opened the front door. End of scenario. Dr. Bowen arrived at the boarding house to find Lizzie in a state he had never seen her before. It had taken her several minutes to unlock her door and admit him. She was shaking. 
Her nerves completely shattered. She sobbed as she told her dear friend the mayor had just told her she was suspected of murdering her father and stepmother. As Dr. Bowen had, no doubt, kept up with the papers and the suspicions levied against Lizzie, it may have come as no surprise. His heart went out to her. He asked Emma to bring him a glass of water. He doubled the dose of morphine he, he had given Lizzie the day before. Dr. Bowen sat with her a few minutes, holding her hand and reassuring her that it would be all right. When he walked from the room to return home, he told Emma to call him if she needed him. He was called back to the house later that evening. Author's scenario continued. The door had barely left the doctor had barely left the house when the accusations toward Emma began anew. Lizzie, not yet dulled by the sedative, was railing against her sister, accusing her of betrayal. I don't want you near me, she yelled. I want you out of my sight. Emma stood helplessly in the room. Her own bedroom was just to her left, and she turned to go into it. Lizzie spat. I don't want you in here. Alice finally stepped forward. Here, Emma, Alice said, her voice quaking. I will change rooms with you. You can sleep in your parents' room. I will sleep in yours. Without a word, Emma gathered her nightclothes and toiletries and exchanged rooms with Alice. Lizzie lay on the lounge, her back turned to the room and to the sister she had branded a Judas. End of scenario. During the inquest, Alice Russell was asked why she had exchanged rooms that Saturday night. Knowlton, where did you sleep that night? Alice, the first two nights I slept in what was Mr. and Mrs. Borden's room. The next two nights I slept in what was Emma's room. Knowlton, after you found that stick, you changed? Alice, no, that did not make me change. Knowlton, you did change after that. Alice, yes, Saturday I found the stick. Parentheses. Alice remains vague as to why she changed rooms that Saturday. There is no report of what occurred to make her do so. The above scenario of Lizzie's ac accusations towards Emma, although a creation of the author, when weighing against Lizzie's typical responses to betrayal and her treatment of Emma two weeks later in the matron's room at the Fall River Police Station, is not an unreasonable deduction. Alice is reluctant to give a reason as to the exchange of rooms, perhaps feeling stories of Lizzie's rage would not be in the girl's best interest. Alice, at this point, has not lost full belief in Lizzie, an attitude that would be tested to its limits the following morning. Unquote. All right, guys, we're going to stop right there and continue next week. And uh, it's an interesting night. You know, learn some more facts about Lizzie and things that went on in the house. Let me turn this thing off. There we go. I want to thank everybody for coming to listen tonight. I know Sundays are hard. You know, sometimes you're still out doing stuff. Sometimes, you know, you're just tired from, from doing whatever you do on the weekends. That's cool. That's all good. You know, I, I understand. But, uh, again, if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you hear, please uh, follow. Hit that follow button. If you're watching on Twitch, please hit the follow button. And if you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. There's that little ghost down in the bottom right-hand corner with the Sherlock Holmes hat on and the magnifying glass. I'll see you guys tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Let me get my things up here. There we go. There we go. At 6.30 p.m. Pacific for Ivor Davis. Ivor Davis, and we're going to be talking about Elvis. So if you're an Elvis fan, this is the show for you tomorrow night. All right? Anyway, again, I want to thank you guys for coming. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. That's because we are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. We want to get the word out about our show, so the more you share with, 
the more people, you know, will, will, will come listen. The more people will download our show. You know, I'm real excited about things because the numbers are going up. The numbers are growing, and I'm, I'm really stoked about that. So let's see if we can keep that going, you guys. You guys have done a great job the last year and a half. Keep those numbers coming. And again, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Also, you want to check us out, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. That's our. That's where the radio gets, you know, all this good stuff gets put on there. Plus, we've got archives going back all the way to our Block Talk Radio days over there. And again, you see that thing running at the bottom of the uh, the bottom of the page. That's because we don't take any money to do our ghost hunting. We we do it free of charge, and uh, everything comes out of my pocket because I'm the owner. So, if you could find it in your heart to help me keep going, even with the radio show and Help me keep new equipment flowing in my my ghost team. That would be great. Uh, you could do that at PayPal.me at California Haunts, or you can do that at Venmo and just type in California Haunts. All right. Well, thank you very much, and I will see you tomorrow at 6:30 p.m. Pacific. Have a good evening.